Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, the podcast about all the cool people in history who did cool stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. And with me today is the one and only Max Collins, who might not be the only Max Collins. There's probably a bunch of Max Collinses. There's probably a few. Okay. Are you are you aware of any other Max Collins? Is it like a Highlander thing? I'm not, but my my dad's name is Michael Collins, and oh, um, <laughs> sellout bastard. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> he he was <laughs> for a while there. He was like getting stopped and flagged on flights because like people thought that you know i don't know that name yeah yeah uh <laughs> that he was the ira, leader IRA from associations years ago. <laughs> yeah exactly so he would have to be pulled aside and made sure he wasn't you know an ira guy yeah yeah who just yeah. is a lich and still alive <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> okay well for anyone who's listening you might know uh Max Collins as the son of the revolutionary IRA leader Michael Co- no um you might know <laughs> Max Collins as the from the band Eve 6 um or you might know him from uh shit posts on Twitter. Uh Max how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um we also have Sophie on the call who's our producer. Sophie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Margaret. Thank you for asking. Hooray. No one ever asks me how I'm doing. So, how, today, how are you doing, Margaret? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm really excited to talk. I'm like, okay. I had a whole 20 minute conversation with you off mic. I know how yeah, you that's are. True. That's true. <laughs> Margaret's well, okay, listeners. <laughs> I'm I'm doing so good today that I get to talk about. I'm literally wearing the shirt of today's topic. So yeah, today, you're wearing you're wearing the merch to the show, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today we're going to talk about a one-hit wonder from the 90s. This is not normally a music podcast, but I hope you all will indulge me. It's going to be worth it. Max, have you ever heard of a band called Jumbawamba? Sure have. Yep. So 
Okay, completely. Uh, have you ever, have you ever like played with them or anything like that? Am I talking about like your friends? I have no idea what you know no, or know about no, this. No, I've never I've never met them. Um, I know the singer whose name I'm blanking on now. Uh, A lot of singers: Bob Whaley, uh, Bruce. Well, nope. Now I'm going to be really embarrassed that I don't remember the name of the people that I'm going to be talking about because I can't like, remember names. Well, I mean, yeah, I can't mm-hmm. either. Um, but yeah, the main dude, after I did, um, I was interviewed for a Mel uh, piece written by Magdalene, forgetting her last name now, R.I.P. Mel. I think that's no longer a magazine. But uh, yeah, and spoke about, you know, Chumbawamba for for the piece. And apparently he liked it. And, was um asked for my email and stuff was going to reach out but i never i never got an email from the man who i'm disrespecting by not being able to remember his name <laughs> right now <laughs> it's more embarrassing for me because this is literally a script about him um and i just am capable for anyone who's like wow margaret sure knows all these like dates and all this history it's because i write it down uh when i research things and then it uh, escapes me but for anyone who uh successfully Dunstan- Dunstan Bruce. Yes, yes, that name that I also remembered. Dunstan Bruce. For anyone who is either too young or successfully lived under a rock during the late 90s, there was this song called Tub Thumping, and it's about drinking and falling over and then not being falling over anymore. And it was fucking everywhere. Uh, And I fucking hated it. Um, I was in high school, and I was busy setting myself up as someone who hated everything that was popular. And that was my original introduction to chumbawamba then okay can i uh ask you a quick question Uh (laughs) uh-huh did you did you legitimately hate the song like did it make you bristle with antagonism when you heard it if you were like alone in your car or something like that or did the version of yourself uh that you wanted to enjoy and present to the world Mm -hmm. um did, did that you know did, did that person not like Chumbawamba? Because I know mm-hmm. with Radio Rock of the 90s, you know, like if uh, Tub Thumping or like Hey Jealousy mm-hmm. or even some of those live hits came on when I was in my car alone, mm-hmm. I would enjoy <laughs> the shit out of them. I would be totally moved by them and stuff. Yeah, but I definitely, yeah. I definitely wasn't telling my friends that, you know? Yeah. Because oh, it was sort of embarrassing. Yeah. No, I I genuinely don't know the answer to that question because I've like rewritten my own script in my head, you know? I think I tended not to like anything that was happy in the late 90s. And so I think the tub thumping... But on the other hand, it is just so... Like now I love this song, right? Yeah. And actually, Hey Jealousy, I actually always liked Hey Jealousy, but I think it's because it was like just before I got too cool for everything. Right. I don't know if I could go back. I Whatever. I'm not mad at my younger self, even though it was affectatious that I refused everything that was like on the radio. <laughs> even though I listened to the radio. Uh, what am I doing listening to the radio if I'm claiming to hate everything on it? I don't know. I know what you mean, though. Yeah. yeah. So I started learning more about the band and they'd been around for almost 20 years before that song came out. They were an anarcho-punk collective. Selling out was this calculated move to reach more people, sustain themselves, and just give a fuck ton of money away to political projects working to destroy capitalism. 
I found out that they, they started out as working class kids who wanted to be in a band but couldn't play any instruments and didn't know how to sing. They lasted for 30 years. They toured the world. They pranked everyone. They got arrested again and again. They squatted a house. They worked collectively. They took in runaways. They raised kids. And along the way, they learned how to make really fucking good music. And so I will present to you my hypothesis that Chumbawamba is the single punkest thing to have ever happened. And no offense to me and no offense to you, Max. But that is my hypothesis that I'm working off of. I'm with it. <laughs> cool. I wonder if Crass is going to come and yell at me. But, you know, whatever. Weren't, I, I, isn't there a crossover there? I feel like maybe there's an ex-member of Crass who was in Chumbawamba or something like that. I know that they heavily influenced, uh, well, Crass heavily influenced Chumbawamba. I don't know about vice versa because they like came out just a few years after Crass kind of came on the scene. Um, but I, I don't know whether or not, I'm sure that they all know each other now. Yeah. Um, and so... Today, the story I want to present is the story of a band that sold out, but in a good way. The Chumbawamba story. Yeah, and I'm, how I'm glad I got over myself. That's the subtext. Margaret got over <laughs> herself. We start our story in Burnley, somewhere, some nowhere town in Northern England, population 91,000 people. And it's in the Northern England. I, I didn't know this growing up, so maybe other Americans didn't know this. It's the the poorer part of England, the place you're supposed to make fun of everyone who's from for being like backwards and provincial. The northern accent gets compared to the southern accent or maybe the Appalachian accent in terms of its social impact is the best I've ever heard it described. And Burnley, where they start, is this sort of town where all the factory jobs had gone overseas and the town is quietly dying, just familiar to, you know, many people who might be listening to this. Most of the band is from there, born in the 60s. Boff Whaley, the guitarist, he's the one who, he got tasked with writing the book about Chumbawamba at some point. So I know more about his childhood than anyone else's because he wrote a book about it and I read the book. But he's not the protagonist or the lead singer uh, or in charge of Chumbawamba. They were all very aggressively a collective at all times. Um, but he's one of the founders and so he wrote the book. So we're going to talk about him. He was a Mormon. As a teenager, his mom had converted. He was a believer. He was uh, raised poor, thankfully estranged from a shitty birth dad, and he had a pretty cool stepdad. Well, probably I didn't. Does. I know. Go ahead. I didn't know that there were British Mormons. Well, so he's the only one who started off Mormon uh, that I'm aware okay. of. Maybe the other ones did. I think that no. This was I'm like just a, saying in general. Hmm? I thought Mormonism was a distinctly American. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you know, religious phenomenon yeah that was yeah they i i don't know exactly how it hit the 60s in england but i was reading about that and i had kind of a similar reaction being like this thing has gotten out of salt lake city yeah um someone should do something about that. i mean um yeah yeah and so 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 buff he he's raised in this family he seems like a reasonably happy family childhood or he's not the type to talk shit about his family in an autobiography. And he's he's really into football, uh, British football, soccer, whatever. And he's really shit at it. And in 1976, I think he's about 15 years old, maybe 14, he sees the Sex Pistols on TV and singing Anarchy in the UK. He sees Johnny Rotten and he's like, this is it. I'm in. I'm going to be a punk. Um, which is way more original than me deciding I'm going to be a punk in like, you know, the early aughts or late 90s or whatever. His, his best friend Midge is into punk too. And Midge's dad is obsessed with saving electricity to save money. So it's this house like, imagine a house where like 
all of the light bulbs are 40 watt light bulbs and everything's dark all the time. And uh, his dad would yell at you if you rang the doorbell too many times because you're wasting his electricity. Huh. And, and Midge wore pants so tight. And this is the opposite of my experience of being a teenager in the 90s. He wore pants so tight that he had to cut slits in the bottom for his feet to go through. And again, direct opposition also to the style of the time, which was flared jeans. Yeah, no, that's amazing because we would cut slits in our pants too. But mm-hmm. I mean, we were buying like size 40 waist yeah. <laughs> pants from like Ross Dress for Less and then <laughs> cutting triangles in the bottom and adding a piece of fabric mm-hmm. under it to make them even bigger. Because yeah. the goal was you wanted your Adidas shell toes to be completely covered, completely shrouded by pant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I... I loved my elephant leg pants in the 90s. I used to walk around barefoot underneath them because because no one knew I was barefoot. No one knew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I felt very, uh, you know, I would would end up in like cities. I would take public transit to like other cities and just feel very like edgy that I had successfully gone without. Okay, anyway. So we have the opposite of the... um, So... Boff and Midge, they're going to shows whenever they can. It's the late 70s. And one day in 1977, they're at a bus stop and they see a kid across the street who's wearing a straight jacket, a homemade straight jacket that he made for himself out of a parka and that he needed his mom's help to get into. And they're like, oh, we got to be friends with that guy. So they go and meet that guy. His name is Dan. He's going to be in Chumbawamba too. Boff says in his autobiography that he hated school and he never did his homework and shit. Um, and this might have been true, but he also like got into Oxford and Cambridge. So I... I wonder how much this is, how accurate this is. Mm. I don't know enough about British schooling. But he says that the main reason he went to school uh, is that him and his friend were selling bootleg records. They would they would take a bus to another town and they meet this like sketchy grown-ass adult with food in his beard who would sell these kids illegally copied classic rock on vinyl. And then they would go back and be like, hey, do you want to buy a record? You know, hey, do you want to buy Pink Floyd or whatever to, to the other kids in school? And the the same bootlegger later pays for a bunch of the local punks to record their albums, which I think is fucking cool. I like this weird, random, sketchy bootlegger guy. He loses religion soon enough. He he starts looking at his options. You know, he's like looking around. He's like, I don't know if I want to be religious. A punk girl takes him home after a UK sub show and and fucks him. And he's like, no, 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 this is it. Sex, rock and roll, punk rock, fuck Mormonism. And so they start a band. And they have a problem. Uh, None of them know how to play any instruments. Uh, So they add more friends, uh, presumably to get more of a chance to learn how to play instruments. But their their other friends they add also don't know how to play any instruments. One of them who did not end up in Chumbawamba because he moved away, his name was High Jump Nadim. He's a South Asian immigrant who always signed up for the high jump and then jumped into the pole because it was funny. Uh, And then they had Bootleg Phil. Everyone has cool names when they're teenagers, you know? Bootleg Phil was the bootlegging partner. I don't know. This is this is how your band started too, right? None of you all could do anything. I actually I actually don't know much about the origin of your band, and so I'm curious. Yeah, I think I I think a lot of bands start that way. Um, you know, our story was just a lot less illustrious, mm-hmm. interesting, and cool. Um, well, if you wrote the book yeah. on it, you could probably figure out a way to do it. Yeah, figure out a way to sort of dress it up. Mm-hmm. But uh but yeah, I think I think that's a fairly common tale, but it sounds like I mean with us we could sort of make our way 
you know, uh, through some chords and stuff like that. It sounds like mm-hmm. maybe Chumbo Wumbo was like, you know, really quite literally coming at this with, you know, absolutely zero yeah. musical uh, education or proficiency. Yeah, although it's interesting because I, I do wonder a little bit. I've watched some of their older videos. Uh, they had this band I'm about to get to called Chimp Eats Banana. And, they, and the book is like, oh, and we didn't know anything. We didn't know how to tune our instruments. But it's actually like passable punk rock. Like I've, I've seen videos of them playing and I'm like, no, that's, I would have a good time at this show, you know? Um, and yeah, so it, and it, it, se- it seems like there, you know, there's maybe a little bit of a theme developing here where, you know, in some sense, they're writing their own lore a little mm, bit. Yeah, here, yeah. Um, which is fine, you know, yeah. which is great. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, maybe one dude was like a little bit more academically inclined than he <laughs> lets on. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe they were a little bit more talented than they're letting on. But yeah. that's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm here for the story. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I really appreciate that they're participating in mythologizing. You know, I, I, yeah, I think that's great. I do too. And so they formed this band called Chimp Eats Banana, and basically they're like at this thing where this promoter is like, oh, if you're in a band, write down the name of your band on this slip of paper. And so they write down Chimp Eats Banana, even though they're not a band. And he calls them up and he's like, hey, you got a gig. And so they go and play shows. And they play a couple dozen shows, I believe, as Chimp Eats Banana. And they theme each one differently. And they're already art weirdos from the very beginning. Like one of them is like, okay, this one we dress in pajamas. This one we lie around in lounge chairs. They do whatever they want. And they, you know, again, they claim they're terrible. I've seen footage and yeah, I would go. Yeah. And they're still in high school or whatever the fuck British people call high school. Um, you think <laughs> I would know because British people make better high school TV than Americans do. Um, but I don't know what they call it. So they're punks in high school and they spend their time like getting in trouble and they, adjo- they get, you know, they adorn their jackets with safety pins and get called into the administrator's office for that. And they like spit on adults and they also are really into football and being football fans, which is not in the normal punk narrative. And I find yeah. it really interesting. Um, I don't know. Are you? I, I know Sophie is a big sports player. Um. Well, I I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. Um, how, how should I introduce him? You know, punk provocateur. Um, you know, infamous lead singer of mm-hmm. Screeching Weasel, Ben mm-hmm. Weasel, mm-hmm. penning. Um, I think he maybe even had a column in Maximum Rock and Roll where he would talk about baseball all the time. He was like a awesome. massive, massive baseball fan. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I always like it when punk rockers like play against type like that. Yeah. Sophie, I went and found you punks who like sports. That was my uh, sole purpose. That was not my sole purpose. But <laughs> so so Boff graduates and goes off and, and he gets offered to go to Cambridge or Oxford. And he's like, no, fuck all that. He goes to a local school, like a local trade school for a minute. And then he goes off to art school near London. And at one point he gets arrested for being a punk. Like it's the first time he's arrested and they accuse him of having stolen his own camera. And he's wearing a shirt that says, I don't want to go to art school. So I don't know, whatever. (laughs) If you arrest a kid who goes to art school for wearing a shirt that says, I don't go to art. I don't want to go to art school. (sighs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, He drops out because he was true to his shirt. He drops out and he buys a 20-pound guitar, which is not a, a weight, but instead a, a unit of yeah. measurement of price. So it's a, a one-stone, six-pound guitar. 
Right. It wasn't a Les Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he goes back home and all the punks are hanging out in this new spot, a railway workers club that some guy named Spider was renting out once a week. And it was Spider who introduced Boff to the works of dead 19th century anarchists like Malatesta and Bakunin. Um, it was Spider and Boff's new girlfriend, Lou, who ends up in Chumbawamba. Uh, literally, she gets dragged into the band because she's the only person who knows how to sing. And they're like, we have shows. Will you come sing for us? We don't know how to sing. Boff gets a job as a postal carrier. He It's a dead-end job. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want an office life. They all spend half their time skipping work and hitchhiking around the country to go to punk shows and they sleep in bus shelters and they just are punks in the late 70s. Which actually sounds really nice. It sounds like a really yeah. nice time to be alive, to be real. Yeah, it does. Um, around this time, High Jump Nadim uh, moves with his family to Tampa, Florida. And uh, a few months later, the rest of the heroes, they give up on Sleepy Burnley and they move to the big city of Leeds, which is an hour east of Burnley. And so Chimp Eats Banana is done, and now Chumbawamba is the new thing. It's just, they're both terrible names. They don't improve upon their name, as far as I'm concerned. The four of them, they rent a place, they're like, and they go to college, and then they drop out of college, and then they try and figure out how to actually have a band, and they start just swapping instruments constantly and just spending all of their time. They build a practice space with, like, egg cartons on the wall and just, like, try to have a fucking band. Uh, summer of 1981... They say, fuck it, four of them with one acoustic guitar and one snare drum. They hitchhike to Paris. They start squatting a stadium like they just, it wasn't an abandoned stadium. They just sneak in at night and sleep in the stands and then try to slink off unnoticed in the morning, off to go busk all day in the big fancy city, making enough money for food and beer. Basically being 20-ish year old punks. And that's how they start Chumbawamba. And their name was picked to mean nothing. Every time they tell the story of how they got the name, they tell a different lie. The most prevalent story, which reporters now report as fact, uh, but Boff Whaley says this is a lie when he recounts it in his book, so who fucking knows, is that while they were busking in Paris, they got hella outclassed by a bunch of drummers from Africa who were chanting something that to them sounded like Chum Chumba Whalen. And if so, this is the biggest thing that they did that doesn't look very good in retrospect. You know, being like, oh, that sounds like nonsense. Let's take it, you know. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Who fucking knows? They also claim yeah. that they got it from some pub where there were two genders on the bathroom and one was Chumba and one was Wumba. <laughs> so, however, got the name. They played their first show on January 8th, 1982, which uh, before I'd done so much as be born. Um, they're way ahead of me, Chumba Wumba. I'm pretty bitter about this. I have a lot of catching up to do. Like the rest of their shows at this time, everyone ignores them and they just did weird shit and called it punk. They film projected behind them of everyone wearing dresses and hanging out in a graveyard. Yeah, they're weird fucking punk kids. I like them. I clearly like them. I am recording a podcast episode about it, making mm -hmm. everyone listen to me talk about my this band as I think is cool. Their second show was in Tampa, Florida. They flew to Tampa to visit their friend Nadim. And they played a show where everyone ignored them and they got kicked out of uh, Nadim's house by his mom for getting the carpets gross. So Can go, you imagine mm -hmm. this iteration of this anarcho-communist band <laughs> playing in Tampa, Florida yeah. in the early 1980s? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that, that you, you could not, you know, dream up a more hostile environment for them to yeah. enter into. Totally, totally. <laughs> Um, so 
So back in England, they pick up uh, Dunstan Bruce, whose name I obviously remember this whole time. I'm sorry, Dunstan, if you ever listen to this. I just don't remember names. Who put up a bandmates wanted sign in a, a shop. And he's the guy who ends up the male lead, singing the male lead on Tub Thumping. We'll get to Tub Thumping. He, after he meets the punks, he drops out of architecture school and moves into their shitty apartment. He gets disowned by his high society dad for doing all of this, which I think makes him like the 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 rich kid of the band compared to everyone mm-hmm. else who's like these small town punks. But obviously this gets really messy when you throw in disowned, right? Like, I don't know what that looked like. You know, I have a friend of mine who like grew up Southern society rich, right? But he got kicked out of the house when he was 16 for being trans. Like, does he have class privilege? I don't know. Because fucking met you, fucking homeless kid when he was 16, you know? Yeah, no, these are class traitors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And speaking of class traitors, in the opposite direction, uh, this show is supported by advertisers. And this is me <laughs> pointing out that, uh, well, actually, here, we'll, we'll, we'll have good advertisers this time. So, so this show, whenever possible, we try to be sponsored by very uh, positive things like uh, my... My favorite perennial is, uh, well, it's a, actually, it's a seasonal. It's, a, it's an annual crop. But potatoes, the concept of potatoes is what I like to be sponsored by because I think potatoes are very good. We've also had other sponsors such as uh, Sleeping Dogs. Um, Sophie, what are, some of the, what, are our, what are some of our repeating A really sponsors? good comb, mm-hmm. uh, drinkable tap water, mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> a pillow that always stays cool. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. So is there anyone that you would like to be sponsored by in this in, uh, for this show? Like something that's just you feel good about? Yeah. Um, I'd like to be sponsored by conceptual kindness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. aspirational love. All right. So this show is sponsored only by conceptual kindness, aspirational love, and... Uh, sleeping dogs and if there's any other advertisers that you hear that is a problem and you should write to uh, sophie on twitter at i write okay and complain bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back from those ads. Hooray! Okay, so so as important to the music that they're around at this time, the things that are inspiring them, is also the radical politics of the time. They're involved in the anti-nuclear movement, this like peace movement against the Falkland Wars, which I literally only know about because of 80s punk. Uh, you know, the American education system wasn't like really big on the wars of the 20th century of um, England. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Thatcher is coming to power who, again, I only know about through punk, but it was a... Safe. Yeah. <laughs> Not a popular person in the punk scene. In Yeah. Um, basically, Margaret Thatcher is this right-wing asshole who gives Margaret's a bad name everywhere and was prime minister the whole of the 80s. And then there's Crass. And if I ever become a music podcast, then Crass will end up on it. But Unlike some other like kind of would-be radicals at the time who would like quote the situationist but not really mean it, Crass like was the opposite. They like they meant it about politics, specifically like anarchist pacifism. And they uh there are this collective of ex-hippies and punks who redefine punk music for better and worse, uh musically. Um politically, I think they're fucking great, although I'm not a pacifist, but whatever. But like, you know, they change punk punk's direction in a lot of ways. And they tie it into direct action in the peace movement. And the point of me bringing up Crass is so I can tell you and I guess accidentally the audience the most embarrassing punk thing I've ever done. Oh, good. Which was that um, one time me and two of my friends started an acoustic Crass cover band with <laughs> cello, accordion, and guitar. And we were Incredible. so, we were so, let's say good. We were so good at this that not only did we get kicked out of the bar that we were playing, that we had been booked to play, uh, the entire convention that booked us to play this bar got kicked out of the bar. They were like, you know what? We don't want you here anymore, even though you paid to be here. And that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. And actually the um the cellist of that is the person who did our theme music on woman. She's actually a very good cellist and it's my fault that the band was terrible. Anyway, very proud of this. Have you uh you have any worst terrible things that you've managed to do in this vein? Curious. Let me think for a second here. I mean in terms of like mortifying moments on stage, sure, yeah. Uh, one leaps to mind. 
uh, which is going to be really funny contextually here because, <laughs> it, but we we did my band Eve Six did a co-headlining tour with the band Goldfinger mm-hmm. in the year two thousand or two thousand one, mm-hmm. and you know Goldfinger by comparison to Eve Six, which is you know a radio level band. Um, to public perception um you know goldfinger was a punk Mm -hmm. and so we would go on every night to usually like a handful of middle fingers Mm -hmm. we were like you know like (laughs) goldfinger who's a real punk band yeah and uh you're six and you know your radio rock you suck Mm -hmm. and um you know, this was in my drinking days. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was hitting the stage, you know, with anywhere between like sort of a buzz to being like pretty substantially loaded. And, um, so this one night, I I think we were actually in Salt Lake city Mm -hmm. and this one dude just wasn't putting his middle finger down and it was really, (laughs) and it was really grinding my gears. So I I was like, I kind of beckoned him up to the front of the stage. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, I was like, come here. Uh, and so he did, he came up to the front of the stage and I had like three quarters of a Heineken that was like next to my microphone Uh and, and I dumped it on his head. I just emptied the entire thing on this guy's (laughs) head. Uh And and that won some people over, you know? Yeah. And, Cause now and, you're real punks, right? Cause now you, I'm real punk. I like, I, yeah. you know, and, uh, and then, so like I sauntered back to center stage, we had a bass player out with us at the time. So I was just being like douchebag singer guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we start a song and I, I put my foot on the wedge, like a rock God mm-hmm. <laughs> and promptly slipped because like I got <laughs> some of the beer on either the wedge or the bottom of my foot so it was Uh super slippery and i slipped and ate shit like i fell all the way down to the ground it was the most like (laughs) instantaneous karmic retribution (laughs) i've ever experienced that is perfect yeah yeah it it sucked but you know it also felt kind of deserved so i was like you know, I'll take this one on the chin. Yeah, I mean, like both things are perfectly good. You know, like both yeah. things just make a better story. Like both things are fine. Everyone yeah. who went was like, two crazy things happened tonight." You know? Yeah, yeah, um, totally. So fuck yeah, yeah. So in 1982, some some of Chumbawamba buy a school bus with a few older punks, uh, like mid twenties punks, and they make the decision to buy the bus pretty much because the guy selling it had six 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 in his phone number, and. They fix up the bus. They head off to Europe to, to bum around in a bus. And they, they busk enough money for f- food and fuel. They park every night at the outskirts of town. They had bonfires and argued about politics. They played impromptu shows to people who did not give a shit at all. Like, they would just, like, show up at a cafe and, like, pull instruments out of the bus and play. And everyone's like, what the fuck is happening? This sucks. Sometimes they would just put on a cassette recording of music and pretend to play along on tennis rackets, like, as guitars. And... All the people on the bus took on ridiculous punk names like Don Quixote and Mad Hatter and Legal Aid. It's awesome. I love the convergence here of like um, hippie aesthetics with yeah. punk ones, you know? Yeah, exactly. You got the the reappropriated bus. Yeah. You know, bonfires and stuff. It, 
you know, almost distinctions without difference when totally. you compare them to, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And like the whole thing just sounds like everything I dreamed of doing when I was a teenager, you know? Totally. Uh, but the 10 people crammed into the bus, they start to lose their minds. One of them decides he's Jesus. Uh, fun arguments turn into not fun arguments. The bus keeps breaking down and they have to hustle like hell for spare parts and gas. Uh, one one guy gets off the bus in France and li- literally no one has ever seen him again. Um, one by one, everyone... Was it the guy? I wonder if it was the guy who decided he was Jesus. That seems the most likely. Yeah. Although Don Quixote and Mad Hatter are fully up there as, as also options. born Also born travelers. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, one by one, everyone leaves. And to be honest, this sounds like most of the times I've done basically this, like travel around in a bus where people are like, whoa, we're going to have this great communal experience. And then one by one, everyone's like, I want my own life. Bye. Yeah. 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 So the three lads of Chumbawamba who are on the bus at this point, they go and they pick and uh, they go pick grapes in the south of France and they decide they're not getting paid enough and they're young anarchists. So they go on strike. So they get fired um, and then they go home to England. And Four of them move into a squat in Leeds, and it's called the South View House. And it's this huge Victorian red brick, almost mansion in a state of near collapse. It was falling apart when they moved in. It had been squatted on and off for a long time. There's an overturned black Volkswagen Beetle in the middle of the garden. Scavengers have been all over it. They've stolen everything worth stealing down to the the doorknobs and the floorboards have been stolen wow. out of this house. Uh, it has never occurred to me that floorboards have value value yeah and the banisters they steal the banisters and the furniture not chumbawamba whoever had been there before yeah the the guy actually who had been the most immediately previous squatter had just moved out and so they decided it was free to move in was a guy who only ate avocados and wore a loincloth and followed a religion called life wave which i tried to learn more yeah i tried to learn more about life wave but unfortunately not available through google so Usually when I say that, Sophie looks something up in about 30 seconds and then schools me on it. Um, so they move in and they start fixing everything up. They dump all their money and time into the house. They learn electrical and plumbing and all of that shit in the process. They, although by the end, they, they're in this house for like 10 or 10 years or more. By the end, the- And it's no, it's no small feat at that time to learn electrical and plumbing. It's not like you're going yeah. and watching YouTube videos. No, that's a good point. You're like checking out books from a library. Yeah, and finding some old guy who kind of hates you because you're a hippie and being like, hey, can you teach me how to fix this thing? Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that's a good point because I'm like, oh, I can do a lot of that stuff. And I'm like, I watch YouTube every night. I like, this is what I do to decompress as I watch people (laughs) rewire things and say, I can (laughs) rewire things now. Yeah. So far, so good. By the end, they claim that the house is held together by the yellow paint on the walls, like the cracks. They just paint over with yellow paint over and over. Within a year, there's nine of them living there, including a bunch of their old punk friends from Burnley, Alice Nutter, and Lou, who end up in Chumbawamba pretty much its whole 30-year run as an actual band. And Alice Nutter, she's named after a, a woman who'd been murdered for witchcraft in, I believe, Northern England hundreds of years earlier. They live communally, they pool their money, they shoplift what they need, they pay off Alice's crime debt because when she first moved in, she had committed a bunch of like felony level fraud and they had to pay it all off collectively, uh, which is very nice of everyone, I think. It's awesome. Uh, Alice later refers to this house as the first place that she ever felt secure, the first home that she had. You know, and I, I doubt she was the only one who felt that way. I just found her quote about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Not everyone in the house joins the house band Chumbawamba, but most of them did. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because this is now I'm totally off script, but it's it's kind of interesting, right? Because like on the bus, it's this classic hippie dream and it kind of just seems like it goes terribly. But this house, they they pull it off. You know, it doesn't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. But they they do pull this off. Everyone cooks, everyone cleans, everyone sort of collectively gave gardening a shot, but then failed to grow potatoes. That's not even me making a potato joke like it usually is. Uh, they tried to grow potatoes and they got blight and everyone was like, you know, it's actually easier to buy bulk food. Let's just buy bulk food. <laughs> they, they run a printing press, I believe, in their basement, start publishing anarchist pamphlets. They rescue a dog and make him their mascot. They went vegan to various levels of strictness. Again, this is the early 80s. Mm-hmm. For a brief and terrible moment, and this is this is me making a potato reference for no good reason. For a brief and terrible moment, one of them, Dan, goes on a strict diet that precludes potatoes uh, because he got mashed, and now I'm he make, got mashed potatoes in his ear from a food fight, and he had to go to the doctor and he got really <laughs> sick from this like infected. I love these people so much. I know. It's insane. My heart is swelling. Right now. I know. Um, and so he gets he goes on this like super strict all natural diet and then eventually he gives up and goes back to whatever else he was eating and they start watching their neighbor's kids after school and years later still in the squatted house two of them have kids of their own two 15 year old runaway punks move in and lou and boff have to go down and meet their parents and basically be like hey uh your kids ran away from home and they're in our house and you should let them stay um we're not a cult Totally not a cult. We promise you we're not a cult. And it, it works. The kids stay. They join Chumbawamba. At least one of them rode that shit all the way up to fucking world tour, you know, number two in the pop charts. Fucking, uh, which, which fucking That's rules. so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is, that is the 15, I mean, it's unfortunately the 15-year-old runaway's dream, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And so they're, they're all already i mean they're punks and they're a punk band but they're already going art and pop and theater directions with their music and alice is opening the shows by reading feminist poetry and one of the first pranks that they run is they start a skinhead band to make fun of the right-wing skinhead scene and they call themselves skin disease and they i remember reading about this It's, it's one of the most incredible trolls yeah of all time they they find and a brave and a brave one too, because totally. you're talking about like a pretty violent, you know, opposition here. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, like walking in, especially as a bunch of like at this point they're still pacifists, walking into this scene that really likes fighting people and loves, making loves fun it. of them. Yeah, and so yeah. they they tell this oi compilation to record their song, and their song is called "I'm Thick." And the lyrics is they just say, I'm thick 64 times and over and over. Yeah. 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 And it appears on the compilation (laughs) Um, along with Uh, all these like right wing patriotic songs. It's not like a Nazi compilation. It's a like go England. We beat the Falkland war, whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, back when you used to have right wingers who weren't Nazis in the Western world. Yeah. Yeah, no, okay. And so and so at this point, they're still pacifists uh, because the anarchist scene in the early 80s in England and probably because of Crass. And then in 1984, they play a benefit for the minor strike that was going on alongside Bjork's old punk band. And Nazis show up and attack and they, they end the show by stabbing people, right? Um, Jesus. 
and basically, apparently, make fun of everyone for being too pacifist to fight back. And then closer to home in Leeds, someone, uh, a, a right wing person, like smashes up their van while it's in the driveway to like get the commies or whatever. And so Chumbawamba's like, all right, you know what? We're not pacifists anymore. This, which makes sense to me. I mean, it's like part of why I'm not a pacifist is I'm like, well, Nazis, Nazis. That's, that's the end of the argument. It's Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> so they get a baseball bat. And when the van smasher came back, they, they swarmed him. They held him down and basically were like, hey, if you fucking come near us again, you're leaving an ambulance. Um, and he didn't come around to fuck with them anymore. But you know what will fuck with you are products and services that support this podcast. <laughs> Sophie, are they pacifists or are they violencists? I can't remember. Are we supported by both sides of that argument? We are supported by both sides of that argument for cool. sure. Capitalism, <laughs> very good at playing both sides of that particular <laughs> argument. Violence for them, peace for their opposition. I think that's the capitalist line. <laughs> Here's some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. And so they've now uh, changed their attitude. And they did more than play benefit shows for the miners' strike. They print up posters, they organize, they join pickets. And one of the things that I like about this part of the story is that, like, they, they were punks, and so they weren't necessarily culturally the same as the miners that they were working in solidarity with. But they're from the same towns, right? Like, they are not this, like, totally distinct, like, rich city. Not everyone who... Clearly, not everyone who lives in cities is rich. But, like, they're not, like, coming in from outside and being like, oh, you poor miners, let us, like, look down upon you. These are people from these areas, you know? Yeah, they're from the same class. Yeah. They're just people who gravitated toward making art. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's not bad when other people show up to help, but, like, working class solidarity fucking rules. So one time, one of um, while, while they're on a picket, because they say on instead of in whatever... It's in the snow. And Chumbawamba does not take credit for this action. They describe it in detail in their book. But there are several things that happen that are illegal that Chumbawamba simply describes as things <laughs> that happened that they were around. And one of them is that there's a uh, one of those, uh, you know, those uh, concrete posts to keep cars from running off the road. And yeah. they build a snowman over it and they put a picket hat on it. And the cops get really mad about this snowman. So they drive it, they try to drive it over and smash up their own cop car. Um, and I feel like that's a, a good way to have a weird picket is to watch cops smash up their own cars. Yeah, like, and they have all of these, what a weird coincidence. We were randomly at dozens of major riots in numerous countries that just happened to coincide with our tour. Uh, and I don't know what the statute of limitations is for rioting across Europe in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So I'm going to go with coincidence. It was just a weird coincidence. Yeah, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. The miners lost despite the pluckiness of the pickets um, in 1985. And it's this whole big deal that I haven't fully wrapped my head around, right? I'm not a huge 1980s labor history England person yet. Although through this podcast, I will eventually get to all of it. It really changes things in, your, in England. Uh, industry closes scabs and cops pretty much need to move out of the towns they're living in because everyone fucking hates them. And so just like it like divides these communities. But for Chumbawamba, this was a big political awakening. They've been politically involved this whole time. But what they realized is that by being in solidarity with people who weren't like culturally aligned with them, they realized how basically navel gazing and insular and obsessively DIY punk was. Uh, not all mm. of punk, but aspects of it. And had all these weird and specific rules from their point of view, all these like cultural rules. This is going to be totally unfamiliar to anyone who's involved with leftism today. There's no way that we would ever police our own over uh, increasingly complicated systems of rules. No. Yeah. Unthinkable. Yeah. It wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> it actually wouldn't. Yeah. Why would... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so Boff, at least, is reminded of his Mormon upbringing or points out that he's reminded of this. And... So they release a, their first EP called Revolution, and it basically is making fun of that kind of elitism. They're not mocking the idea of revolution. They're mocking the weird rules that everyone has. Basically, they're like, we got to be fucking better because we're not trying to have a scene. We're trying to have a fucking different society. And, 
and they're really politically savvy, right? Like I had kind of, when I found out that Chumbawamba was like into radical politics, I'd kind of been like, oh, that's cool. But I hadn't realized quite that they were like in it. Like it was there as, as much a part of what they did. Um, Alice Nutter in the late 90s, I think in the tub thumping era, pulled a fanzine about single issue politics. Single issues half the time, this is me quoting Alice Nutter, single issues half the time end up being welfare groups for social misfits. All the sad bastards that don't have a life join single issues. I refuse to be guilt tripped saying that any one thing is the most important. The problem is we don't have an overview of what's happened to us politically. It's really hard to step back and look over the last 15 years. Capitalism has come on in leaps and bounds. Why ain't we? Instead, people go, well, I've done this and I've done that. We've been really stupid. We've not responded to what capitalism's done. Instead, we've been too busy policing each other. I've changed the way I go about things. Yeah, right? Um, I've changed the way I go about things because I've had to, because I want to live in the real world. That's the quote. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and incredibly relevant. I know, 25 years later from even then. And it's like, I think about it because like I got into politics 20 years later than them and I had to have all these epiphanies all over again, you know? <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, their, their EP revolution is a hit, at least by their standards at the time. It gets radio play. I think it's their first radio play. It, it charts on the indie charts. And so they put out next a, a full length called Pictures of Starving Children Sell Records, which is basically a whole album making fun of Live Aid, a charity concert happening at the time that cost millions of dollars to stage. And because they're weird, annoying art punks, they pressure one of their own bandmates, I think Dan, to make himself puke so that they could record the sound for the end of the record. And I watched at one point an interview with the the sound producer and it was like the first time he met them. And he was like, I met this band and the first thing they made me do was like record one of them throwing up. This is great. I'm doing amazing. I've made good decisions with my life, thought the sound producer. And to, to fuck with the sort of standards that they feel like they're being held to. They would do shit like release a, an album of, of like punk pop um, and then followed up with an acapella album. They would they opened for Motorhead by singing acapella. They started in court. Speaking of opening for someone and getting their middle fingers thrown at you. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Just go and sing 17th century worker songs to people who are at a festival in Europe to see Motorhead. Uh. Um, <laughs> And they start incorporating dance music and house music into their music. And it's not a cynical thing. They just like going to raves and doing ecstasy. So they're Mm -hmm. like, fuck it. Let's do rave music. And they also wrote an album about how much they love sports because they're working class British kids at the end of the day. Uh, And they tour. That reminds Mm -hmm. me of, have have you, are you familiar with Viagra Boys? I am not. Please tell me about Viagra Boys. Actually, no. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic punk band. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I discovered via Sleaford Mods, okay. who definitely have some crass influence in in their sound, mm-hmm. but they have a song called Viagra Boys has a song called Sports. <laughs> and uh, you just gotta look up the video and, okay. and watch it for yourselves. It's it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I I I love the tension around things like sports in a subculture because you have Yeah, it's all these people being like, no, we're too cool for everything that's cool. And then other people are like, yeah, but it's really fun. Have you all tried playing sports? It's really yeah, fun. Yeah, it's very, it's very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they, they tour constantly. And this is the only way they can make any money because they're not selling enough records to sustain themselves. And they also have this permanent shoplifting competition because, of course, they do. 
which is who can steal the most expensive and ridiculous shit before their po- their shows. Um, one time they get banned from a venue in Dublin because they throw packages of condoms into the audience, which is condoms were barely legal in Ireland at the time. You had to be 18. You could only buy them in certain places. It didn't help that Alice Nutter was dressed up like a nun drinking out of a bottle of whiskey while she's breaking this law. And then Boff Whaley gets into fell running, which I believe is, best I can tell, is British for trail running. And how it happens is, uh, well, first he goes and sees some fell runners with his dad. And he sees one of them with a, a pink mohawk. And he's like, huh. And I think the guy wins, but I'm not sure. And, he, and Chumbawamba opens for Conflict. And Conflict is this punk band that at the time, they always carry baseball bats to their shows because their shows always turned into riots. So the show turns into a riot. And the cops come to arrest everybody and the punks start fighting back. And Boff meets this punk in the crowd who was the champion fell runner he had seen. And he watches this fell runner outrun six cops. Six cops take off ch- chasing him and the, the runner takes off. And basically, Boff is like, I think I'm going to get into fell running. That sounds cool. And most of the books he writes now are about how awesome fell running is. And they keep being activists as they start touring constantly and stuff. Their house gets raided by cops three times. The first two times, cops are basically like, we've seen those people. There's probably drugs there. Uh, and so the cops raid and there weren't any drugs at the time. So the raid. Or maybe they didn't keep drugs at home because they were responsible people who had children in the house. That actually, act- I don't know the answer, but that's my actual guess based on everything I've mm-hmm. heard about these people. Um And then the third time, the cops battering ram down the door to search the place for explosives because someone, presumably tied to the anti-apartheid movement, which all the punks were part of, had set off a bomb somewhere that didn't hurt anybody. And they're like, oh, well, we know where some punks are, so let's go kick down their door. They get arrested. They get kept in cells for 24 hours. They get strip searched. The whole house is trashed. All their literature is taken. And so what they did once they got out is they took the name of the cop who had interrogated them and they put it on their electric bill. Um, until they figured out how to make their electric bill run backwards, and then they just stopped paying for electricity. Um, They get pulled over and strip searched by cops who are looking for drugs all the time at borders. One time they get pulled over on tour and strip searched, and they don't like that there's hundreds of copies of anarchist magazines in their van. So they get turned away from countries fairly often, and they have to like change their tours around as a result of all this. And one thing that they tried to do, one punk classic they tried and failed at actually, is they tried to siphon gas for their tour um but they got caught really quickly and they were like this is not worth it it is not worth it for us to siphon gas we should just pay for our gas um they get arrested a lot uh to quote boff again for a few years in the 80s dan and alice were king and queen of getting arrested it didn't matter if they'd been somewhere else at the time if there was trouble they'd get arrested it became a liability to stand near them on demonstrations One minute, you're watching Jill Scott Heron in a sun-soaked Hyde Park with 200,000 other nuclear disarmament campaigners. The next thing, you're trying to pull Alice out of the back of a police van surrounded by baton-wielding cops. And if one got arrested, the other would get jealous and fling themselves into the arms of eager policemen. And later, Alice was like, you know, eventually we figured out that the point of protest wasn't to get arrested and that not getting caught has its own merits. Um which if I were to add an additional sponsor to this show, Sophie, could you reach out to not getting caught? 
and uh, <laughs> and advocate. Yeah, for I mean, I I would I would give up potatoes for that. I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, not getting caught has its own merits. So. And in 1986, Alice has her her leg broken by Dutch cops at an anti-NATO rally and still managed to stay on for the rest of the tour. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. They're in their pre-celebrity heyday. They're running around getting into trouble every chance they get, including getting into trouble with the punk scene. And when we come back, they're going to get into way more trouble with the mainstream world and the punk scene both. But Max, first, let's hear about the trouble that you're getting in or the stuff that you're up to that people can check out. Oh, excellent. Well, Eve Six has a new album coming out, our first full-length record in like 10 years. I forget That's the cool. date of that, but I think it's sometime next month. We we just put out the first single from it. It's called Mr. Dark Side. Okay. And, you know, it's in all the likely places. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Eve Six. And uh, I post a lot, uh, probably too much on there. It works. And and I also recently started doing an advice column for Input Magazine. And I'm really enjoying doing that. Um, And yeah, that comes out twice a month. So yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll, you'll see that too. But that's sort of what we got going on. Okay. And Sophie, what trouble have you been... What legally actionable trouble have you been getting into? Oh, just go to coolzonemedia.com, all the things. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, you have a book coming out, don't you? I do. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. It's called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. It's available from AK Press. And if you pre-order it, you get an art print of, like, teens riding around on bikes past graffiti that says the devil lives here and all the fun cool. uh, short science fiction and fantasy stories that your heart could possibly desire. Awesome. We'll see you on Wednesday. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs, If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.